Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Nobody does yoga or meditation to benefit someone else. We do it for ourselves, for fitness, to find calm, and increasingly as part of a larger spiritual practice that includes meditation. But something happens when people who share an interest in yoga meet and form community. You arrive at yoga to take care of yourself but you bond with others over mutual connection and shared values. It's a very specific scene, different than hanging out at a coffee shop or coming to church on Sunday. Yoga gets you to slow down and notice things, starting with your breath. That experience can have a catalytic effect. It can open you up to meditation if you haven't gone that route before. It could also help make you more sensitive to what's going on around you, to the food you eat, the lighting in the room, the sounds you hear, the scent in the air, all aspects of the environment you find yourself in. As you slow down and connect to your inner self, nature has a way of getting your attention as well. Next thing you know, maybe plants start talking to you, or at least you can hope they will. It's worth thinking about what the yoga community is capable of when you realize that some 37 million Americans are now practicing, according to the latest study. A huge jump from only a few years earlier. Who are these people? Who, of course, includes me and probably you. Where might this all be going? What will activate this community to bring its shared values and beliefs to what it does in the world beyond the yoga mat? One way that a national, even a global yoga community is making itself known is through yoga festivals, which bring together hundreds or thousands of aspiring yoginis for a long weekend of asanas wellness, and music. This year, there will be at least 29 multi-day yoga festivals in North America alone. You could tour them the way some people travel from Burning Man Regional to Burning Man Regional. It's become a thing. The progenitor of the modern-day yoga festival is Wanderlust, which had its first event in 2009, and this year organized some 65 single- and multi-day yoga festivals in 16 countries, many of them attracting thousands of people. They also opened up a beautiful Wanderlust Yoga Center in Hollywood with a cafe and a store where the L.A. yoga community can come together. Wanderlust may well be shaping the largest yoga community in the world. Certainly it is in the West. I recently visited Wanderlust Hollywood to talk with Jeff Krasno, its co-CEO and a founder. Jeff started out as a musician then moved into the music business managing bands before starting Wanderlust. In our conversation, we talk about those early days and what led him to take such a deep dive into the yoga world. We also explore what an activated yoga community is capable of. I hope you listen through to the end of the interview when Jeff talks with deep knowledge and experience about the power of community to create culture, to impact social change. Expanded awareness should lead to compassionate action. Is the yoga community ready for the challenge? 
Part of the vision for Evolver included an online marketplace where products made by community members could be offered to others. The Alchemist Kitchen grew out of this marketplace. It's a botanical dispensary that offers the highest quality whole plant remedies, botanical medicines, and beauty products from the best artisanal herbal makers from across the country. You can find herbal products on the Alchemist Kitchen site to help you sleep better, reduce pain, boost energy, find calm, think sharper, and much more. And if you happen to be in New York City, come by the Alchemist Kitchen flagship location. It's at 21 East 1st Street, between the Bowery and 2nd Avenue, on the border between the East Village and Soho. You can have a state-changing herbal elixir from the Tonic Bar and chat with one of the staff herbalists about the products we've curated and what might be best for you. In my own experience, as I began to be aware of what I eat, cut out processed foods and refined sugar, and get in better shape through yoga, etc. My body's sensitivity to what I put into it increased. A lot. And I discovered that the right kind of plant medicine could be more effective than pharmaceuticals while being gentler on the system. And I started to pay attention more to what my body was telling me, which took some time because I grew up eating the worst kinds of junk and assumed that feeling bloated and sluggish was just part of the human condition. I discovered how the judicious use of plant allies could help to boost my system and shift me from worrying about warding off illness to maintaining a high level of wellness. On thealchemistkitchen.com, you'll find a blog with lots of information about herbal wellness and an assortment of products that will inspire you to see the connection between your body and the plant kingdom in a whole new way. The Alchemist Kitchen is devoted to the power of plants. And if you stop by the spot on East 1st Street, mention the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any purchase of herbal remedies or CBD. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. When did you start doing yoga? I started doing yoga... With my wife. I mean, my wife is really the muse in the whole thing. She grew up on on sort of a commune in Northern California and, you know, grew up with that embarrassing kind of yoga that your aunt might do, Um, you know, with a crystal and a field and all of that stuff. And but, you know, she she had that in her life from a very young age and then had a had a horrible back injury when we were actually on our honeymoon. In 1994, dating myself quickly in the interview, and sort of rediscovered yoga at that juncture, and then um, and then became a teacher. Fast forward, I was running um, a music company in the financial district in 2001 in Manhattan, in Manhattan, and just two blocks north of the World Trade Center. Then that happened in September. We were in this tiny little radius right around Ground Zero, where you couldn't really access your office at all. Uh, they let they let us in just kind of once to gather our stuff, and our little building had been kind of just you know infiltrated with with dust and ash. A lot of people moved out of the building, uh, so it was pretty much a creative space. A lot of photo studios and artists and things, and you know they moved into Brooklyn or Woodstock or other places that artists went at that point. So there was a, a space available just upstairs from my office. And um, my wife took it 
and opened Kula, which is Kula Yoga Project, which was her her first studio in early 2002. Um, so literally, people like you had to walk by my office door, kind of up these very, very funky, uneven, green fluorescent steps, which are still that color somehow, 16 years later, and up into this really modest little studio space. Had like a tiny little lobby and... You know, I remember, you know, our friend Leela painted, we all painted the walls and, you know, it was as homespun really as it could possibly be. And, you know, that that place became its own ground zero in a way, sort of a ground zero for healing. You know, Kula is a Sanskrit word for intentional community. That's what my wife created there. You know, very specifically, a place where people could be together, to uh, be safe, be vulnerable. And really, you know, it was, it ended up being a place, um, a local place for a community that was going through a tremendous amount of grief and, and needed to heal. And, you know, people would walk in to yoga and they would see, you know, their favorite teacher and, and people from their community and they'd be able to kind of take their armor off for 60 minutes or 90 minutes and heal and and practice and sweat and laugh and then come out and hang out in this little tiny lobby and sit on this tiny little couch and and really, really connect. And so that was my first real introduction to yoga, Um, not just the practice, but also kind of the community and the value system I came around it. So it was made pretty easy for me. All I had to do was go upstairs. Not that I went that often, to I be honest. I was wondering, yes. Yeah. Like it's right there. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of were being lured upstairs. I was being so lured upstairs. I mean, it was certainly an interesting community of people that were coming right by the door. Obviously, it, it helps when you have a accomplished yoga teacher living with you <laughs> because she would also design kind of classes for my wonky little strange body, which uh, had its own weaknesses and deficiencies. I actually had a total hip replacement as a, as a pretty young age. So I had, you know, very limited range of motion on one side of my body. So I had a very hard time flowing in a regular, normal class because I couldn't step through on my left side and there were plenty, lots of things I couldn't do. So she created sort of a modified practice for me with a lot of blocks and a lot of um, pivoting um, instead of, you know, stepping through. So I would I would service both sides of my body equally. So yeah, Kula really there on Warren Street in Tribeca. Well, that was my first real introduction, you know, to yoga. And then... So you were a business guy and yeah. your wife was teaching yoga. Mm-hmm. I got to say in New York at the moment, that's not an uncommon combination. Yeah. Right? You see that? No, we were trailblazers. <laughs> well, certainly you're doing that. I mean, you were doing it a little earlier, but it's but you were not necessarily embracing it as your own lifestyle or your own practice right away. It t- sounds like it took a while for you to develop. Yeah, I mean, I think from a early on, from my introduction to yoga. I didn't see it as much of a as an asana, strictly an asana practice, as I saw it as sort of a correlated value system. Um, it was just a bunch of choices that people were sort of making about their life. You know, so when you say an asana practice, you mean a practice, a physical practice, 
It's about the stretching, the breathing, the exercise. Right. It's kind of what you do on the mat. And I started from just the beginning. I saw yoga as just a much broader thing. I'm not just think the way you act and behave on the mat, but the way that you act and behave honestly off the mat, which is where you spend most of your time. In and what wh- way? Can you explain to me how that? How do you see it? That yeah. Way? Well, I just I tended to find that yoga technically it means you know to yoke uh, or union. You know, union with. Um, with your higher self, you know, with, with God, you know, it doesn't matter really what you call it. it. could be God or your original nature or your infinite soul. It doesn't really matter. There was a system of kind of eternal truths around what that meant to connect with your higher self. You know, Maslow talked a lot about that, you know, of self-actualizing and, you know, where you can become in this life and connecting to these notions that have followed kind of every major religion or philosophical thought from, you know, Lao Tzu to Jesus to Herman Melville, you know, to Emerson to now of divine love and forgiveness and compassion and persistence and charity. That's what yoga meant for me right away because what I saw was not actually that much of the physical practice, because where I hung out at Kula was more in the lobby. Uh And what I saw were people having deep kinds of connection around how to heal from what had happened, you know, down in this downtown Manhattan at that time. Uh, And then, you know, I, I got to know a lot of these people really well at Kula. And, you know, they were all embodied a lot of the other kinds of values that were important to me. Um, you know, prior to the discovery of yoga, but more kind of in my sociopolitical mind of, you know, okay, we're here to have a good life, but also a life that's good for others and, and for the earth. You know, that we're here to be, you know, stewards of positive and supportive relationships, that we're here to value other people's opinions in equal proportion to our own. You know, some of the kind of truths that underscore the yogic tradition or yogic beliefs and so to me you know that's that's like if you actually you know fast forward into my life and and ask me well what influenced wanderlust or how did you what was the dna that went into it well for me it was all of these kind of correlated values and then they expressed themselves in sort of correlated behaviors where you know eating you know, organic food or local food, cooking with people, uh, meditating, doing yoga, cultivating your own personal spirituality, composting, whatever, you know, all of these things fit together to me right away. Um, And, you know, in 2009, when I was trying to actually market the idea of Wanderlust, where it's like, oh, you can have a yoga festival with music, and then there's kind of organic food there and you can drink wine but it's not vegan but it's like people would look at me cross-eyed like I was just nuts like what the hell are you talking about but now if I said those things people would be like oh yeah all those things just go together because they did for me that's it you know it wasn't like a brilliant idea or I wasn't like a head of some you know cultural curve or something and this is just what made sense for me in my own life so Did you develop a real yoga practice? 
I developed a regular yoga practice, I would say. Um, I'm not an advanced practitioner, but like this morning, you know, I do my own little, you know, series of sun salutations and then I sit and that's it. I, I try, I often... And when you sit, you're doing a meditation? I'm doing a meditation. Uh, you know, I have my own little technique to find space. Space is just key to everything in life. We can talk about that too. But I have my own ways of finding that. It's very auditory for me. I come from, you know, I'm a musician. I came from, that was my first gig, so to speak. So sitting in a studio, I would imagine like listening to all of the instruments on all of their separate tracks. First to hear the essence of it and then break it into their component parts. And then you start, your ear becomes incredibly trained to do that. And when you're just sort of subconsciously or unconsciously walking through life, like you do 97% of the time, 97% of the things we do every day, it's just, we're not, we're, we've just subconscious mind have trained us to do it. You miss things. And so to become aware and present in the moment, for me, I start to think about all the layers of sounds that are around me at any particular time. And when you do that, you start literally, I think of it in sort of a mixer engineer's terms, you start hearing life in its own component parts. There's track two over there with the birds, you know, in the corner. Oh my God, there's, there's not just one set of birds, there's five sets of birds doing different things. And, you know, for me, that's my little technique to bring me into the present moment where, you know, and then my mind will go where it goes. But so to come in, this is something you can do at any moment, not just during a meditation. Mm, yeah. But while you're walking around, you're on the street, you're sitting in your office. Do you do that? All the time. It's just an amazing little trick. I don't think people um, appreciate it. I mean, I don't know. It's not anything that uh, I'd read a book about or anything, but it's, um, it's just a trick that works for me because it does just focus you. It brings your, your attention to your peripheral awareness. Which gets you out of your head. Gets you out of your head. So you're not thinking about how much you're thinking about how much you're thinking. It stops the monkey mind, you know, and gets you into a more observant mind where you're just, you know, an observer. And when you're doing that, I wonder, do you notice your body differently? When that happens, when you start to hear, when you pay attention mm -hmm. to what you're listening to, does it help you notice what's happening with, say, your breath? I think everything just honestly slows down and quiets down and you have... Um, your body almost just sort of goes away. You know, you could say that you have, you know, perfect awareness of your body in space. That's a little different for me. That comes more for me when I'm athletically engaged, to be honest. I grew up playing competitive tennis. I still do now. And for me, that's like where I kind of experience the deepest states of flow or peak performance um, of, you know, perfect awareness of your body in space. But I think, you know, with, with, Finding that technique that brings you into um, the present moment, that for me is just, it. my body almost sort of goes away, where you're just, uh, you become an observer of things, and time slows, and, you know, you find space. That's what you need. I mean, the one and only voice of God is silent, right? So finding that place that is infinite, that never starts or never ends, is a complete really departure from your body because your body starts and ends. If you believe in that, 
then your body is just kind of this vessel that sort of gets you around from here to there, you know, and just do your best to kind of keep it as healthy as you possibly can. But in order to truly self-improve or self-actualize, it is the process for me of tapping into the part of yourself that is infinite, that never starts and never ends. And to do that, you need space. You know, one of the principles that in, in our company was creating a very, very clear centralized mission and then creating tremendous fluency around that mission and then creating, after that, decentralized decision-making. And that is the path for growth. Because if you give people a very clear and coherent lens through which to make decisions, then you don't have to manage that. What's the mission? The mission is to help people find their true north, to really provide actionable techniques, what we call sort of recipes for living that help people to live their healthiest and most inspired selves here on earth, that you don't have to die to return and find the place from which you came for the first time. So the mission is not do great yoga festivals. There's a different level of mission. It's a higher, like there's a higher resonance, higher purpose. Oh yeah. That's the driver. There's a, I mean, you know, you talk about sort of what your infinite soul is and tapping into your own divine love as an individual or human being. I think it's so important, especially now that companies, anyone in the private sector identifies what their infinite soul is. Uh, And then the rest is just an expression of that. The rest is just chop wood, carry water. You're not really even doing anything. It's just being done. And that's not to say like there isn't a lot of hard work, but when you envision something, I often think like the most effective way of going about it is to go as deeply and wildly and as childlike into your imagination and find that vision and then just work from the end. You already know, it's already created. You know, you're just working now from the end. So everything becomes really simple. Again, it's just like, chop wood, carry water. I'm just going to work and I'm just raking the path. doesn't really matter. Like I'm just doing all of the steps that need to be done to manifest who we already are, manifest the vision that's already been created. So you started with the studio, yoga studio, uh, downtown Manhattan, financial district. Did you find as you were working with the whole operation that the way that it was manifesting surprised you that the next step might have been something you didn't see coming? Not really. You know, I mean, on some level, it's sort of a mix, I'll be honest. I mean, but I will say that what has been created was not that different than the original sketches. We created like, you know, what do we want to do? Well, we've got this studio and we want to create events. And it was never about one. It was always about many It was never about money. It was about a movement. Yeah, when we launch Wanderlust like we did last year in Moscow and St. Petersburg and, you know, yeah. Was that in the plan? No, you know, not those specific places. But on some level, you know, what we've done is not, wasn't, hasn't really been that different from what we kind of most early uh, envisioned. 
What got you thinking about events? Well, I was in the music business and it was a business that I knew. Um, And, you know, I watched a lot of my contemporaries that were in that business with me launch big events. Like, so, for example, you know, I managed a bunch of bands that were kind of in the sort of jazzy jam band world. And and I was spending a lot of time down in New Orleans over Jazz Fest every year, pretty much. Um, for 14 days, God knows how I made made it through there, riding home on a bike at six in the morning every night. New Orleans is very flat, so you can do that. But like, you know, Jonathan Mayers and Rick Farman and those guys who were down there and we were hanging out forever all night with shows that started at three or four in the morning, you know, I remember talking to them and they're like, yeah, we're starting something really crazy in Tennessee. Um, but I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, come on, you're going to go book your plane ticket. And, you know, that was Bonnaroo. And I remember going that first year and being like, wow, you know, my friends that did these little shows down in New Orleans, they did this. This is like... And then, you know, and that that was happening all over the place and my contemporaries doing very large festivals. And so, you know, we just had a, like a little a different angle on it, which, you know, was obviously very influenced by yoga and wellness. And So how did you set the mix for the first one? Oh, Music yeah. meets yoga. Oh, right? I mean, we fucked it up horribly. It was awful. I mean, it was great, but it was awful from a... <laughs> just a planning perspective because at that juncture so really kind of what had happened is my wife after Kula had started she started leading um, retreats down to Costa Rica to the Osa Peninsula um, um, and I would tag along on some of those with my partner Sean you know it would be you know fly into San Jose and then you drive to the other airport and you take a puddle jumper and then you take it in the back of a truck and you like bounce out for an hour and you're like nauseous and then all of a sudden you know here you are at this kind of paradise and you know there were 30 other women pretty much basically out there on these retreats and we were all kind of like waking up with the sun and meditating and surfing and doing yoga and you know in the early days there was no digital connectivity and then all kind of making food together at night and then like having a glass of wine or two and playing music or hanging out or, you know, just living kind of the most kind of healthy, vital, inspired self. And, you know, there was certainly an economic dimension of it where it was like, wow, these young women would basically pay any amount of their disposable income to sleep outside, you know. But really it's, you know, to be in community around shared values and the things that, that they love. And, you know, it's like, well, geez, if we made this more accessible and put it in a beautiful place, but maybe in like 90 minutes or two hours from a major metropolitan center in on the mainland, um, could, you know, could we get 3,000 people there? You know, and that was the question really posed in the, in the deep rainforest of the Osa Peninsula. So when we came back, we we're like, okay, yeah, that's it. And, you know, found a name for it. Where did the name come from? The name was a beast. Uh, it, it was definitely reminded me of like naming a band in college where you'd come up with a thousand awful names. Um, and that was also the case with Wanderlust. And to be honest, it was just dumb luck. I was sitting on my couch with my kids crawling on me and it just popped into my head. I had a sense for what it meant. I asked Skylar, I was like, it's Wanderlust, it's kind of like desire to travel right something like that she's like yeah i texted sean and 
And we, it was one of these weird things that we just all um, knew it from the beginning. We're like, we nailed it. Um, it's a great name. There's a lot of metaphor in the name. So obviously with that innate desire to travel, there's a, that mirrors a kind of internal spiritual journey. And, you know, we had the compass as the, as the main visual kind of identity, kind of as Wanderlust as sort of the navigational device helping people along their path to find their true north. So the whole thing fit nicely together, which was randomly discovered a small talent for branding. You know, we we found a location and that's a whole journey in and of itself. But um, but my, you know, at this point, our, um, our experience had been kind of in the world of music and then in the world of yoga retreats. And like, we were like, okay, we're going to roll up all of our big music friends and then all of the biggest yoga teachers and some meditation teachers and some personal development authors. And we're going to basically, you know, just mash it all together and see if it works. And so we did it at, at Squaw Valley, which is um, this beautiful, I mean, God kissed the forehead of that valley for sure. This is one of the most beautiful places on earth um, up near Lake, Lake Tahoe um, in the Sierra range. We, we almost, we basically were producing two festivals at the same time, which we produced sort of a music festival up at the top of the mountain where we had to actually box truck us and build a stage by hand up there. It was nuts. Uh, and a, um, and a kind of wellness festival sort of at the bottom of the mountain. And, you know, we spent way too much on music talent and, you know, we just, we just, you know. When you say wellness festival. Yeah. Had there been wellness festivals? Not really. This is what, 2009? This is 2009. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, there had been conferences and I think that's where we differentiated ourselves very, very quickly is that, you know, we were coming from this, you know, festival space where, you know, things were fun and outside and, you know, adventurous. They were not in kind of fluorescent convention hall situations. Um, and I had been to some of those conferences kind of prior to launching Wanderlust. And I was like, man, these are cool. I've got some great teachers here, but the setting is so uninspirational. How are you going to have a transformational experience in like a fluorescent conference room? It's just hard, but you know, you put it out on a mount on the side of a mountain in the Sierras, and it's just like people are already that much more open and ready for that experience. Uh, and then obviously you get all of like you know the nature activities and all of that stuff bundled in. Had you been to Burning Man? I had not, and I still haven't. You know that that weekend coincides with sort of a what had been like a a sacred family weekend forever and i was an east coaster the end of august like labor day weekend labor day weekend yeah Yeah. but uh yeah i mean i have interest to go though i will and i certainly have worked with a tremendous amount of folks that are you know very very close to that world i tend to by the end of the summer the last thing i want to do is go to another Another event (laughs) um i only mentioned it because yeah you know it's obviously not strictly speaking a wellness festival but even back then, or maybe more back then, there were all kinds of, how should I put it, wellness culture. Mm-hmm. That was as close to yeah. a wellness festival environment in 2008, 2000. Yeah, and well, because when we started in, uh, you know, at Squaw Valley, so there was a, you know, there was a pretty big burner scene, you know, right, 
in Reno and around Reno. And to be honest, like a lot of the um, props and crazy vehicles and things like that were, were are just stored up there in the off season. And they would show up at Wanderlust um, in the first, especially in the first three or four years. And our programming was slightly more Burning Man, I guess, friendly from like a DJ culture perspective and, and other things. So those first few years were crazy. The cultural engineering piece of it was a balancing act because obviously we were really trying to promote a healthy lifestyle. But then, you know, there would be elements that were not so healthy. You mean raving until four o'clock in the morning before your 6 a.m. yoga class? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. By Sunday morning, even now, by Sunday morning, you know, we, we see, we have a scheduler and people, you know, buy their tickets and then they they schedule um, for classes and we'll see like, oh, the Sunday morning at eight o'clock is sold out, you know, great. And then the reality is like, <laughs> you actually go to that class and there's like 10 people there. Very odd. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like the way that the Wanderlust festivals developed the first few years, it's one kind of energy, but then it's discovering itself mm. to become something that it's maybe, you know, becoming more of its own thing and less of an extension of, or, you know, uh, a part of it, of a culture that, you know, was coming partially from other places. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, there was something iterative about it. And, and then there's also the culture for it has just grown. How would you describe that culture? Well, I mean, I could give you very specific sort of demographic, psychographic data. On it. Which actually would be interesting because there's not a lot of that. Or it's not easy to find. Yeah. That well, kind of information you know, about it, this quote unquote, you know, consciousness world, consciousness scene. Yeah, I mean, this is a little skewed because this is just like straight, you know, hoop festival data and stuff. But it's like, you know, 89% female, average median age of 33, super highly educated, like off the charts educated, you know, very high average household income, but sort of an, e an interesting distribution because there are younger kind of millennial yoga teachers that are honestly not making that much money, but then obviously very established experience like female urban professionals that are making quite a bit of money in in their 40s so it's, it's an interesting sort of split but you know that um it's very very urban you know it, and so it's in some ways all of you know the things that you would expect um i think it's changing a little bit now amongst millennials and younger uh where there are more men becoming involved um you know, certainly I see that at, at Wanderlust at the studio in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, where maybe a guy doesn't want to spend, you know, a couple thousand bucks and fly to, you know, the North Shore of Oahu to go to Wanderlust there. But, you know, yoga is part of their everyday practice and they love the community aspect of it and, and, and all the rest of it. So I see, you know, that, that proportion, that 89% doesn't hold up in, in, in Hollywood. It's much more evenly distributed. So I think that's, I think that's a positive trend. I mean, to be honest, I think that's the great challenge in front of us in wellness in general, um, is how do you democratize access to some of these practices and products and goods? I mean, that is certainly more evident than ever with food. 
you know, it's like half. Well, yeah, if you want to eat healthy, it's not cheap. No, well, and you can't even access it. It's like half the country, more than half the country yeah, yeah. lives in a food desert. Right. And it's like no wonder that we're getting more healthy and more obese at the same time. And, you know, it's a third, you know, almost half the country is diabetic. It's like 30 million people have diabetes. There's another 90 million people with pre-diabetes. So it's like 120 million of us, um, you know, and that's all f- food related, basically. Um, and and so, that's happening at the same time that 20 million people are doing yoga yeah. regularly. Yeah, more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and are becoming more conscious or connected to their, to, you know, to a healthy lifestyle. So yeah. these things are happening strangely in parallel. Oh, I mean, this is society. It's a, it's a great snapshot of society, to be honest. It's like we are divided in every way. We're in our bunkered, in our little ideological sorted holes. And, you know, united by what Brene Brown calls com- common enemy intimacy, where we, where we basically share the things that we connect around are shared hatred of something else instead of, and that's it. I mean, we're, we are so divided where people, there's a group of people on one side that have access to things and other people that don't. And this is honestly the great, great challenge in our society in general, which is how do we find a greater sense of connection, not just with our own tribe, um, but, you know, with people that we might not share every single belief or practice with. And how do we provide access to, um, you know, we're obviously talking about things in, around health and wellness, but it's not just that. It's, um, it's obviously like quality health care, quality education. I mean, there's a swath of us that have just not have been, quote unquote, left behind. We've heard about it for the last two years. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You mentioned one of the things that attracted you to the yoga community was how they were coming together around healing. That healing was at the center of a of, of, of the bond. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the division in the country right now, there's an awful lot of people hurting who could use some healing. And the healers, the healing world, isn't touching them right now in the way that maybe could be helpful in a process of, of, of societal change that's, mm-hmm. it's a wave, it's happening, right? When you, you yeah. can see, you look at the last 50 years, these kinds of things like yoga practices or different kinds of spiritual practices, healthy eating has gone from a very, very small number of people, real minority groups that were doing this, you know, back in the day mm-hmm. to something which is really much more of a much mainstream thing, yeah. but it's a mainstream in some areas. And 
vacant in other places in the country or very, very little. It doesn't really, doesn't touch. And certain, certain communities are not being touched. And the anger in those communities, the resentment about what's happening to the world around them that they don't feel connected to, they don't necessarily understand, their money, their, their paycheck is getting chopped up. They're not, they don't feel the same sense of security about the future. So these healing practices can be very powerful for people who are going through that kind of stress. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my friend Nick Ordner is sort of revolutionizing what it means to be a first responder. So he, he's a master in EFT, is tapping. He uses it as trauma therapy, and he has been working with a team of psychologists to deploy basically a mindful first responder team to places in need. So he's actually from Newtown. Um, Newtown, where's that? Connecticut. So he was there at Sandy Hook. He had done work in Mexico and Rwanda before that, but he um, you know, was deeply moved by Sandy Hook and you know, was like, well, we've got to do something in our own community. Um, and he did, and the stories are very moving. And then, you know, more recently in Parkland, you know, he he was able to bring a a, a a bunch of holistic healers together, deploy them to Parkland, and then work with the clinicians there that are on the ground um, to offer other forms of, of of sort of you know PTSD or trauma therapy. That's awesome. And um, but you know, it, it's I think that. What has struck me um, about what I've seen kind of on the news, for example, is, you know, I mentioned that demographic or psychographic to you before about kind of, and that's not wildly off from, I think, kind of what the wellness or health and wellness community is in general. Um, I think that's reflect, those same numbers are relatively reflective of the, of the community in general. But when I look at the Women's March or even March for Our Lives, I'm like, oh my God, those are the same people. You know, I'm looking out and my girls all flew to D.C. and I took my other girls down here to the march in L.A. And I'm like, wow, things, are, things have changed Um, And this is what I really feel about this community. The biggest shift that's happened in this community over the last two years is that people are drawing a straight line for the first time um, from their own personal wellness to societal well-being. How is it manifesting at the Wanderlust Festivals? Well, to be honest, I am focused on starting something completely new around this notion of societal well-being. And this is in kind of gestation for me. You know, for the Wanderlust events, you know, we will see. I mean, you know, we have tried to, we've made efforts, you know, for example, like right now we're in discussions with like the Wounded Warrior Project of like, okay, come on, we'll give you just, we'll give every um, local chapter, free tickets. Like, let's get some vets out to the events. Come on, let's just, you know, have, it's, at the worst case, it's just a nice day in the park, you know, right? Uh, it's for our 108 series. You know, I, I think that we're going to start to see, you know, subject matter um, at our events start to kind of reflect uh, this greater... Um, merging of personal and societal wellness. In fact, we have a, a conference. It's uh, 
I don't want to call it a conference because I just talked about conferences. We have a, a new event uh, in Palm Springs called Wellspring, um, which does that. It's basically the Wanderlust's first kind of swing at sort of an ideas festival. And it, it, it's much more expansive in terms of the subject matter. It's not just great yoga teachers teaching people yoga and people sweating on mats and things. It's, uh, it's a little bit more uh, ideas focused. And, you know, that's one of the big things that we're exploring is like, what is that cross section of, of personal growth and, and societal well-being? Do you, can you imagine bringing that into the wanderlust events themselves? As a component, do you have speakers that have more of a social engagement yeah. in those events? Yeah, we do. I mean, I you know, I had this little franchise within Wanderlust called Mindful America, uh, and I've had it since the beginning of Wanderlust. And in a way, it was like, you know, everyone was like, "Oh, give Krasno his little wax to grind over there on the side, <laughs> and like he's not going to bother us too much as like his little pet project." And Mindful America was basically. It was like a, a little part of our events that imagined, you know, what a mindful policy could look like. So if you were kind of looking at all of the planks in a mindful platform, you know, what would a mindful healthcare policy look like? What would a mindful incarceration policy or what are these views around social inequity and social income polarization, you know? How do we approach all of these things mindfully? Um, and, you know, we would bring in... Marianne Williamson and Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio, you know, folks that have sort of a mindful approach to policy. And, and I did a number of events with that theme um, over in Hollywood. And they were always successful. But there was always a sense of like, yeah, you know, yoga is sort of in my sacred practice. I really wish that you would keep your sully politics out of my sacred practice. Those days are over. Excellent. Yeah. How did that? Uh, how did that come to you? Did you notice that those days were over? Like, what was the thing that was there? Was there a moment where you felt, oh, you know what? People are responding now. Yeah. You know, there's a number of different moments. Uh, I had a number of events that I held here in LA after the election of 2016, um, and yeah, you know, obviously there were a lot of um, passions that were ignited you know, right after the election. And then there was like, oh, well, those were fade, you know, and then, but not really, you know, they didn't. And, you know, what I'm seeing is not just a shift in um, the community, but a shift amongst the leaders of the community. So uh, in December, um, I was invited to partake in sort of a mastermind session in New York. And it was focused around Congressman Ryan to some degree, and this was, you know, 25 or 30 of the most influential wellness authors and public speakers and teachers in the world. Mark, Dr. Mark Hyman and Brendan Burchard and, you know, on and on. There's people with millions of followers and good friends of mine. And people that had always shied away from, I'm not saying that they ever, ever did, but just in general, people that had shied away from being on the front lines that were actually worrying about alienating their audiences or, you know, needing to play it kind of safe on their social media or whatever. I was just amazed how upfront people were about, it is now my responsibility to engage civically, 
to have social impact and to support some of these ideas that are going to move our society and culture forward. Uh, and not just worry about like, oh, I need to sell so many books or I need to sell so many online programs or things like that. And it has become a calling for people. Now there's been like people like Marianne and Sean Korn and Carrie Kelly and people, there have been people that have been leading for a long time um, around social activism and, and, and merging, finding the cross section between kind of the wellness community and social activism and social well-being. But now this has really, really come to the forefront amongst the leaders of the community, the teachers, and, uh, and I'm feeling it. The thing about this idea of mindful America, has something emerged out of those conversations where there's, a, there's an agreement about, like, what is more than a list of policies? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of people responding to the current administration and the current political situation, feeling we have to do something in, to react to what feels very dangerous, right? I'm not seeing a lot of, or even any emergence of a clear, high-level vision mm-hmm. of what we want this country to be, Yeah, that many people are connecting to, talking about, feeling that they're going to embody through their action. Yeah. That leads to policy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what I'm seeing, I'm sure very much in parallel with what you're seeing, is in certain pockets, folks who really had no interest in what I would think of as like quote unquote consciousness culture in the last two or three years getting turned on. A lot of people I'm seeing, people of influence, people who are coming from, you know, more traditional business backgrounds, people who are successful in the world having built companies or, you know, achieving conventional success, turning around and going, you know what, that wasn't really wasn't what I needed. You know, I need something else, mm. right? There's a different kind of conversation happening among people who are, uh, understand in a way how the world, quote unquote, really works, who are having their own awakening moments, who are feeling a deep personal sense of connection to the planet, to the ecosystem, to what's happening to the environment. And they want to engage and they want to do stuff. And they're changing their careers and they're getting out of their hedge fund and they're quitting their advertising company and they're doing, want to do something else. And I'm wondering if in the conversations that you're in, are you seeing something starting to emerge, like a, a vision? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, I think we're groping around in the dark for that higher calling, if you, if you will. And this was always something, uh, and, and I agree, that there are a, there's a tremendous energy and there has been also, you know, real action, especially in the private sector, uh, you know, with the notion that our other institutions are failing us, um, that we in the private sector need to step up because we have the, um, the opportunity, the ability to create systemic change. Uh, and you've seen, you know, people on a, you know, high, Tom Steyer and Howard Schultz and, and other, and Tim Cook and other people, you know, take a step forward in ways that I don't think that you saw before. Um, I do think that, you know, and this was something that frustrated me about Obama, and I'm a big, big fan um, and admirer. But, you know, after sort of hope, you know, the hope thing, the hope message, 
which, you know, which is always sort of dangerous because, you know, expectation is disappointment and waiting, right? So, you know, we had in this country a new deal um, that, that was sort of a, a social compact that basically for the common good that, that, you know, we as a people feel like we need to provide a safety net to dull the, the sharper edges of capitalism. And, and this idea of a new deal was sort of the overarching principle. And then, you know, we had, you know, a generation later, we had the new frontier. We can go to the moon, you know? There's nothing we can't do. In some ways, it was beautifully childish. It was like, like what we said before. It's like, you know, you work from the end. We said, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. We're going to the moon. Um, and we did. And, you know, and then kind of unlikely, we had the great society, you know, coming from a guy from a senator from Texas who, you know, basically led the way on uh, uh, with the Voting Rights Act and the Act and the Civil Rights Act. And, and you know, and we had and, and, and also tried to, you know, abolish poverty as we know it. And since then, we have had no higher calling. I was waiting because Obama was so perfect, was so ripe for it. You know, I didn't know what it was going to be. Was it, you know, the new enlightenment, you know, right? It's like where we, where we look at science and reason and innovation, but we apply it, but we apply those things to a spiritual calling that we're going to lay broadband in every Rust Belt city that we're going to take wind and solar and bring it not just to California, but we're going to bring it everywhere across the country. And we're going to provide people that have been left behind by globalism with real high-paying, great jobs. Now, that would be a new enlightenment. That would be harnessing technology and innovation with a spiritual calling to, for the common good. But we don't quite have that yet. No one has stepped forth with that vision. Now, there are people like, like Tim Ryan who are leading bus tours of venture capitalists around the Midwest. I mean, he did that. And he's starting to get like real steps, you know, like, you know, getting investment in some of these cities that need it the most. Um, you know, getting mindfulness treatment for veterans and into public schools, getting real food, real food into public schools. So there are, there are, kind of downstream from this high-minded idea, there are practical things that we need to do. But I do think that we need both. We need to be inspired and motivated by something, by an idea that recognizes the value of the common good and recognizes our common humanity. And from there, the policies will emerge. And from there... You know, to me, the Democratic Party can start to make sense of bed of strange bedfellows that marries basically blue collar folks with environmentalists in the same city over that should both kind of be part of the, the same party, but are at odds over very specific kinds of issues. But it's like, you know, we have like we need to find that greater calling. And I think, you know, it's out there, but it'll need, it'll need the right messenger. How do you feel the yoga movement broadly is contributing to this vision? 
mm -hmm. of a more conscious polity. Yeah. Well, you know, there's 24,000 yoga studios in the United States, give or take. And sure, there's a lot of them that are concentrated in the places that you'd most expect, you know. But there are, they are everywhere. They might be a tiny little studio and strip mall. But they do bring people together around a common practice. And they do provide a venue for actual real-life connection. Connection to each other. To the people in the room. To the people in the room. And we don't have that many institutions that do that. You know, we have churches. Um, otherwise, we're pretty much like holed up in our own little compartments with our smartphones, with artificial intelligence basically spitting information at us that they that is sorted for us around things that we already know and believe in. So you're seeing the actual... The community room, the yeah. yoga community room, as a kind of center, almost like a sangha, or like as a as a, a holder of that right. community energy. Sure, it's cool. Back to the beginning of the interview, it's it's intentional community. Where else can we do that? Where else can we? I mean, there's an epidemic of loneliness. I mean, Vivek Murthy, who is the Obama Surgeon General, he said the number one epidemic in the United States is not chronic disease; it's loneliness. And it's like, and there's a direct con connection between loneliness and the op opioid crisis and loneliness and um, stress, all of these different things. So, so are you seeing the community, those, those yoga studios, the 24,000 yoga studios yeah. as offering more than exercise in most of those cases? Well, I don't know if they're consciously all doing that or not, but yes, I think the net effect is yes, because, you know, again, I think you go into a yoga studio and you immerse in a practice, you know, that is designed to make you strong and fit, but also to cultivate your personal spirituality. And when you do that with other people, that becomes powerful. And those people know there is a, a sense of community that generates, that it develops at a yoga studio that you cannot find other places. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm obviously very close to it, but I can't tell you how many examples of like what happens when someone, you know, gets injured at, um, at, at, you know, has a skiing accident or a car accident and what that, and then the communities that spring up out of yoga studios that help start GoFundMe pages that pay for their medical bills. I mean, this is just kind of what happens. It's, it's what community used to do. It's what neighborhoods used to do. So I think that that just in and of itself is so important. I mean, I'm actually, I was talking to my friend Jake yesterday and I'm going to do this. I'll send it to you. But I think that there is a direct correlation between cell phone use adoption and the popularity of yoga. And I bet if you mapped those graphs over each other, they would match almost exactly. And I will do it and I'll try and I'll try to prove it. One of the reasons why yoga has become so popular and why there are so many yoga studios is that society, it's one of the very, very few times in life that society has given you permission to be on, disconnected and off your phone. It's, it's, it's honestly amazing. It's like when I go to yoga class, you know, people are like, oh, you didn't answer my text. And I was like, well, I was in yoga class. They're like, oh, okay, that's cool. But it's like, 
It's yeah, you, the excuse. It's, yeah, the, it's, it's, the, but it's the approved but excuse. It's societally condoned. Yeah. But it's like, I'll be like, you didn't answer my text. Well, I was with my kids at the soccer game. It's like, but you didn't look at your phone once during that time? I'm like, yeah, I was with my kids. Yeah, but just like, you know, look at your phone. But like, yoga, no problem. Kids, eh, maybe not so much. That's so true. So, I mean, I really think that it gives the people an opportunity to disconnect digitally and connect again with themselves and the people and the other people in the room around a common practice and potentially common and shared values and beliefs. And, um, and, I, and honestly, I do think that is one of the reasons why yoga has become so popular, whether people sort of consciously associate it with that or not. So I do think there is, you know, this community center concept. If a bunch of years ago, Lululemon curated this thing that I, um, that I um, agreed to be the MC for called the Gospel of Sweat. And it basically addressed this very notion that, you know, the fitness center or the yoga studio or soul cycle or flywheel was the new church. It was a place where people would convene on a regular basis around a shared practice or shared beliefs. And I mean, you could see it as that. How important is it to you personally that the yoga practice leads to a greater interest in maybe meditation or something that's of a more internal kind of practice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I think, I think everyone's practice is their own. And obviously I think, you know, yoga was set up um, as a practice to lead towards meditation. So it was a pre-practice for meditation. That's what it is. Um, but, or the, what I should say is that's what asana is. And that's why when we get to the end of a class and we're in Shavasana, we manage to, that's really just essentially meditation. And God, how much easier it is. You know, Shavasana, of course, you know, you're dead tired, so you're waiting for it. But it's like, that is deep meditation quickly. You access it because you've been able to go through the process of moving your body to get to that place. Um, I mean, you know, when Skylar opened Kula, she had a slogan that, that was spirituality through sweat. And, you know, I liked it because, you know, it was sort of a secular message that I think could sort of people found, you know, cute and, and you know, it was just good. And I think, you know, that that plays well kind of in our modern culture where I'm not sure that people are going to, necessarily seek out yoga as a uniquely just spiritual experience from the beginning. I think for some people, um, they do, but I think in some ways sort of yoga is that gateway drug, you know, it's sort of like, you know, try it and then you're onto the hard stuff, which is, you know, all of a sudden you're on a eight day Vipassana in, in Joshua tree or something like that, but you had to get there some way some, you know, some way. And, you know, yoga might've been the way in the door for that. My sense is that there's, for a lot of people, myself included, yoga opened a doorway to a spiritual experience you didn't even know was possible. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, what just happened? Like, I just had this crazy experience. And what do I do with that? And it raises kinds of questions. Like you start connecting to your breath, you notice how your body is changed and how your head is changed and then maybe you're connecting to something else that you weren't connecting to before it's just a whole you know forces a certain kind of or reorientation 
Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're interested in supporting as a process? Like, do you, as part of the wanderlust ethos, is there a, a specific way that people who are having those kinds of wake up moment mm. experiences are being helped along? Yeah, I mean, I I think that we have focused more on on the community aspect of like what the magic that happens for people after they've done yoga when they're together. And, you know, and it, it can be anywhere. Obviously, we've put that in some beautiful places. But where where I get a tremendous amount of joy is watching sort of my theories play out in action where, you know, we when we designed Wanderlust Hollywood, for example, I looked at like what retail fitness does. And I was like, I'm going to do the exact opposite of retail fitness. Retail fitness is basically based around getting a lot of members to sign up and not come. When they do come, get on the Stairmaster for 20 minutes, but you're not allowed to stay on it for more than 20 minutes and please get off so then someone else can get back on. And our whole point was like just the opposite of that. It's like, come, don't even have to take a class. Just here's a beautiful place to be. We created a ridiculous amount of community space that didn't almost really make any business sense on some level. But we were like, what we want is to go do a yoga class. You sweat, your heart opens, your mind opens, you go with a friend, and then all of a sudden you sit out in a beautiful patio, you get something healthy to drink or healthy to eat, and the magic that then happens, the relationships that are formed, the businesses that are started, the babies that are made, although not on the patio, but somewhere. <laughs> you know, I'll see people after class, and this is what happens with Wanderlust. They come, they're like, they make a day of it, they make an afternoon of it, where they come and do a class, maybe they do a meditation. You know, I, I just watch people, they're they're listening with the same passion that they're speaking. So beautiful. I think that's where we have focused is like we create a setting for community just to thrive and explode. Um, And, you know, and then it's up to them. And so now you're seeing that as something that's happening in larger and larger venues Mm -hmm. in more and more places. When you're alone with yourself late at night, imagine like, Looking ahead, mm. few years, what's the outcome of this? Ironically, you have to be alone a lot to think about how you grow community. Um, <laughs> but I think there is a way. What I want to find now is scale. I want to find a way to create access for people to connect around these great teachings. Um, with a scale that we've never seen or had. And in order to really achieve that level of scale, it has to happen first digitally, because that's where you can really, really achieve scale. But, you know, digital, to create the conditions that are necessary for a community to thrive, it's much, much harder to do that digitally than it is to do offline. So you need to create a community environment online that has the same conditions, safety, vulnerability, trust, you know, more than 140 characters of, of communication. 
And so that is what I'm thinking about. And I'm working on a place for ideas um, and great teaching to, to thrive within a community environment that starts very, very scaled online, but then actually funnels down to mass decentralized offline intimate gatherings. And that I think is the challenge, you know, I think, well, I mean, personally for me, but, you know, again, I think it's a challenge for everyone of like, how do we create more access? So this is, these are te- yoga teachings. These are all kinds of teachings. These are the masters. Masters. The masters across all of these sort of correlated teachings, whether that be Qigong or yoga or meditation or how to live a truly sustainable lifestyle or how to cook or eat in a very healthy and sustainable way, um, how to create social impact in in your community. All of these things are tied together and they all have incredibly inspirational teachers, leaders that can give people actionable information. And then you create a safe place for that information to be disseminated and distributed. And you create a platform for the community to thrive and connect with each other and the tools for them, for those people then to take those learnings into the world. That's cool. That's powerful. As you're growing the Wanderlust festivals around the world, you're going to St. Petersburg, places you didn't anticipate being. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, are you finding that the reception to, what's, to, to what you're presenting is different from region to region? And what are the differences? The crazy thing is that it's not that different. And I mean, in some ways, I'm like a little disappointed that it's not that different, but on on another level, it's really heartening because it it makes me feel like there is a scene and a community for this everywhere in every corner of the earth. And we're going pretty much everywhere. It's like 17 countries, but not just in Santiago, Chile, which always blows me away or all over Mexico. When you have like 2,500 people show up for an outdoor yoga class. I mean, you know, it's honestly, the numbers aren't that different in all of these places, but also in Charlotte and and Dallas and Scottsdale and Kansas city and Atlanta, you know, all of these places where we are, there are core scenes and community for these kinds of practices and beliefs. And to be honest, that's what gives me a lot of hope because if we can find ways to sort of like, you know, pour some gasoline on those communities, give them this, I mean, what Wanderlust is for, um, for a lot of folks is this high moment where all the people in their town or in their city or in their region get to come together in one place at one time. I mean, I think we have an event in Atlanta next week and you know, a lot of the ways how we market is with, you know, all the studios that happen to be in that city. And, you know, there's people that know each other, but don't get to practice with each other because they live cross town or maybe they work together, but some people live in a different neighborhood and they have their own home studio and all that kind of stuff. There's teachers that know each other, but they don't really see each other that much because they're teaching and they're busy and they're at another studio. This And this, this becomes this sort of like high moment that unites and brings all those people together in one place. And then, you know, you get out of the way, you know, and let the magic happen. Awesome. This has been Thank awesome. You. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for letting me ramble away. <laughs> <laughs>
Back in the day, the civil rights movement grew out of the black churches. Then, in the Reaganite 80s, the conservative movement mobilized through the evangelical churches. There was a whole network that came out of that that forms the base of the Republican Party to this day. What if the yoga studios became the network for the next wave of political action that can really impact this country in the 21st century? Could a new politics of compassion and community, of environmental awareness, emerge out of this namaste moment? It would be good to do a show of hands, of yoga studio leaders, of the organizers of these spaces, and see if they would be willing to play that role, to open up their space for speakers, for organizations to come in and connect with their local community to help build something on a local and national level that could really impact the discussions we have in this country about where we should be and where we should go and bring the values, the beliefs and ethics of the yoga community into our political moment. It'd be something to try, huh? I want to thank Jeff Krasno again for being a guest on the podcast, and I want to thank you for joining us. To find out more about Wanderlust Festivals, check out wanderlust.com for a calendar. Jeff also has a great Wanderlust podcast. You can find that on their site. Thank you for all the feedback we're getting on the show. I really appreciate it. Please, if you find an episode that you like, if this one resonates for you, post it on social media, share it with your friends, and you know, drop a little comment on the uh, iTunes uh, reviews board. And it's helpful. And uh, we're just trying to get this out to as many people as we can. That's one way to help us do it. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at The Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes or on the podcatcher of your choice. Our email is theevolver at evolver.net, N-E-T. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the whole ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Go check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.